You have given us the ability not only to read it and to study it, but to memorize it. Lord, we just thank You for that gift, Lord. And we ask that tonight as we come to study Your Word in Matthew, Lord, that You would make it alive to us. Lord, that we would see in it who You are, Lord, and who You reveal Your Son to be through these events that take place. It's in His name we pray. Generally speaking, I have a love-hate relationship with microphones. It took me a really long time to learn the lesson about not talking uh, before you run what you're about to say through your mind. And in a lot of ways, I still haven't learned that lesson. Having somebody that hasn't around a live microphone is usually a really, really bad idea. But we still let Jerry get up here anyway. <laughs> Perhaps one of the best examples that I can think of this, of this is uh, Jen and I's wedding day. We hired a videographer to come in and videotape the ceremony so we would remember uh, the event well. And the church we were getting married at had all kinds of crazy rules about what you could and couldn't do during the ceremony. And if you're having a photographer or a videographer, where they had to be while the ceremony was taking place. So at our church, the videographer had to be in the back. And he was concerned that he wasn't going to be able to record what was said up here on the stage. So he gave me a lapel microphone, a lot like the one I have on tonight. Not a big deal, right? Except he gave me the microphone really early in the day. So uh, he gave it to me, and he told me to go ahead and turn it on so that I didn't forget to turn it on before the ceremony started. So all day, I'm walking around with this microphone, and our videographer has a little headset, so he can hear everything that I say all day long. Uh, anything that I said, anything that anybody said to me, this guy heard. And I can't tell you how many times I said something or somebody said something to me, and then we remembered that this guy in some room somewhere else in the church just heard what we said. But that wasn't the worst part. About a month or two later, we got the DVDs back from the videographer. And he had spent his time and gone through and uh, made everything look really nice. And Jen and I had a time of worship during our wedding ceremony. So we had a friend come and he led worship and everybody sung uh, three songs. So Jen and I get the videos, we sit down like any newlyweds, and we're really eager to see, see the ceremony, even though it was only like two months ago. And we get to the worship part, and you can hear the guys singing, and it's really nice, and you can hear the crowd, and they're at the normal volume. And then there's me at about three times the volume that I would like to hear myself at singing. And so we sent the videos back, and he fixed them, and he took them out, and the reason why is because Jen and I chose not to remember our wedding that way. We didn't want to remember that time of worship with me singing really loud compared to everybody else. And any time we ever tell any story or we remember an event, we all make decisions like that, whether we acknowledge it or not. We take out parts, we leave out details. Sometimes we may put in detail. And... We don't want to remember the embarrassing parts of stories. We don't want to preserve those so that, you know, 
five years from now when Dinah watches our wedding video, she hears me singing freakishly loud. <laughs> but Matthew in his gospel seems to go the complete opposite direction of that. He takes parts of the Christmas story that most people would consider the embarrassing parts. If, if you ever read the Christmas story or somebody tells the Christmas story, outside of maybe the visit of the Magi, which it talked about in the video, everything else comes from Luke. Most of the details in Matthew don't get talked about. That's because these stories aren't as nice, they aren't as fun, they aren't as cute or uh, memorable as the stories in Luke. And tonight in Matthew, we come to one of these stories. It presents Joseph as unwilling to trust Mary because she comes to him and she says that she's pregnant and it's by the Holy Spirit. And Matthew doesn't buy it. So he's going to divorce her and leave her because he doesn't believe what she's saying. And as we come to these stories, it's really easy for us to just read these familiar stories of the Bible and miss what they're trying to say. It's easy for us just to read this story and say, oh, it tells us this about Joseph and it tells us this about Mary, but to miss the, the main point of the story. And that's that Jesus, that Matthew's goal is to reveal who Jesus is, that he's the one who's been promised from long ago, and that he's the presence of God with his people, and he's the, the symbol, he represents that God is going to keep his promises, and save his people from their sins. And I'm just going to quit looking at you guys because there's just two of you over here, so I'm just going to look at them, okay? So if you don't already have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament in the second half of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's some ESVs at the end of the rows, and you'll find tonight's passage on page 807. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So if you remember last week, I made a pretty big deal out of this word in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Matthew. That's the word that's translated genealogy. And I explained that the word is the same word that we get the title for the first book of the Bible. It's Genesis, and it talks about Jesus' origin. Matthew uses that same word again in verse 18, and there it's translated birth. And what that tells us is in the first 17 chapters of Matthew, he presents the story of Jesus' birth in this detailed list of ancestors. And then in these next, 18, verses 18 through 25, 
what Matthew's going to do. He's going to tell us the same thing, where Jesus came from, in a story form, in the form of a narrative. I don't know if you noticed this last week or not, but towards the end of the genealogy, things change for Matthew. You see, throughout the whole genealogy, there's this pattern where it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. And it goes on and on and on and on and on until the very end, when we find in verse 16, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So what Matthew's saying is he's saying that Joseph wasn't the father of Jesus in the same way that all these other guys fathered their son. And that's a problem. Matthew wants to explain that, and that's why we get verses 18 to 25. What he's trying to do is he's trying to explain how Jesus is Joseph's son, and that's what we're going to find out tonight. But as he does this, as Matthew explains how Jesus is Joseph's son, he reveals to us more of who Jesus is. And that's what we're interested in. So, in verses 18 and 19, what we see is Matthew giving us some background information on this story he's about to tell us. The first detail in the story is that Mary, Jesus' mother, was betrothed to Joseph. Here, it's important for us to understand that betrothal or engagement, if we want to use a word that's easier to say and easier to understand, engagement was different in the first century than it is for us. You see, now, if somebody wants to get engaged, they go out, this guy goes out and he buys a ring, and then he goes and he begrudgingly asks the girl's father for permission, even though he's very intimidated. And then after he gets the permission, he comes up with some elaborate plan, a big romantic gesture to pop the question to his fiance. Back in Mary and Joseph's day, it was a much more serious matter. A couple became engaged by standing in front of a big crowd of witnesses, so it'd almost be like if somebody wanted to get engaged tonight, they did it in front of all of us, because they wanted us to bear witness to this formal contract that they were making. And this contract was so serious that the only thing that could break it was either death or divorce. So it's almost like they're already married, but they're not yet living together. I mean, this becomes clear when we see in verse 19 that Joseph is already called Mary's husband, even though they're still just betrothed. So, Mary and Joseph are engaged, and their engagement is serious. That's what makes the next detail so significant. You see, Mary comes to Joseph, and she says, I'm pregnant. They haven't uh, been together yet, and Mary turns up pregnant, so Joseph assumes that there's been some sort of infidelity. She tells him that it's from the Holy Spirit, but Joseph doesn't really believe that until later in the story. In verse 19, we find Joseph's response to this. This is how he's going to respond to his fiancée coming to him and saying that she's pregnant. He says, it says that Joseph is a just man. What this means is that he's righteous according to the law of Moses. It means that he lives his life in accordance with the law of Moses as it's explained in the Old Testament. In this case, for Mary, who's committed infidelity, even though they're just betrothed, it would have still been considered adultery. So she's committed adultery. For Joseph, the proper response was to stone Mary. That's what the Old Testament says. In the case of an adultery, uh, the adulterous woman is dragged out in front of a crowd, people throw rocks at her until she dies. Thankfully for Mary, 
when the Romans came in, they took away the death penalty from the Jews. They no longer allow the Jews to kill people for breaking their law. So, Joseph has to come up with another option. And the law, as it was understood then during Roman time, was that in the event of adultery, divorce wasn't only allowed, it was required in the case of adultery. So, Joseph had to divorce Mary because of the adultery. But, it says that even though, even though he was a just man, even though he knew that according to the law of Moses, he had to separate from her, he had to divorce her, it says that he was unwilling to put her to shame. You see, usually when these things took place, when a husband wanted to divorce his wife because of adultery, he would drag her in front of a crowd. He would publicly humiliate her and say, this is what she's done, don't have anything to do with her. It says Joseph's not going to do that. Uh, instead, he decides to divorce her quietly. So we can under, understand verse 19 like this. Uh, even though he lived a righteous life according to the law of Moses, even though divorce was required because of adultery, he still uh, chose to divorce her quietly. I think that we can learn a lot from Joseph's response to this situation. You see, even though he knew what the law required, even though he was righteous, and that's what he set out to do. Uh, the law requires divorce. It doesn't require humiliation. He knows that he can uphold the law and still be compassionate about it. And I think that that's something that uh, we miss a lot of time in our day. You see, all day long we're faced with circumstances where people live their lives contrary to the standards of Scripture. And we can either hold them to those standards with compassion, or we can be jerks about it. Uh, for example, the Bible is pretty clear on its stance towards same-sex attraction. I think it would be nearly impossible to read the New Testament and miss that. So does that mean that we go outside and we stand on street corners with signs that say, God hates people who are in same-sex relationships? I don't think so. It's not what the law requires. These people that do these things aren't preaching the gospel. They're preaching hatred and they're preaching fear. And they don't understand the gospel, or they'd show it by how they live their lives. Paul's attitude was completely different than that. He understood himself as a sinner first and foremost, and because of that, he knew that the gospel was about redeeming sinners, not making us not sin anymore. And so he was able to have compassion on those who found themselves in sin. We could also go to the other extreme. We could be really hateful, or we could be completely uh, compassionate to the point of forgiving sin when we're not supposed to. Uh, we could say, well, you know, the Bible was written a long time ago, and they didn't have TV back then, they didn't have computers, they didn't have cell phones. How can it actually apply to my life today? You see, people back then weren't as enlightened as we are now. Now it's okay to be in a same-sex relationship because we're different now than we were then. We just need to love everybody and accept everyone just as they are. The problem with that is that faith and repentance are always together in the Bible. You can't really have one without having the other. And uh, people come to the gospel as sinners, but we come to the gospel as sinners recognizing our need to be transformed by it. It's not just us coming and saying, accept me in my sin, I don't want to change. It's us coming and saying, accept me in my sin, I want to change. 
We have to find the balance, like Joseph, between being completely condemning on one side and making light of sin on the other. We have to find out how to uphold the standards of Scripture, the, the standards that God has communicated to us in Scripture lovingly. Joseph does this, but before he gets a chance, something happens. So he's considered how he's going to respond to the situation of Mary being pregnant. Uh, he makes his decision, and then he goes to sleep. As I was studying this week, I really was wondering if this is where the origin of the phrase sleep on it comes from. You see, Joseph made his decision, he goes to sleep, and then something happens that changes his mind. Uh, I don't know, it might be. So he goes to sleep, and what happens is this angel comes to him in, in a dream. Four times in these first two chapters of Matthew, Joseph is going to be instructed in a dream. This is the first of those times. The angel comes and he says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What is conceived in her, the baby in her womb, is from the Holy Spirit. He says that she's going to give birth to a son, and Joseph is to name him Jesus. So he tells him to do two things. Take her as his wife and name him Jesus. For Joseph doing these two things, these two things meant that Joseph would have legally adopted Jesus as his son. He takes his mom as his wife and names him. That's him saying, I'm your father. What's really interesting about what the angel says is how the angel explains Jesus' name. He says, He said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the Greek name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Yehoshua, which we know is Joshua. The Hebrew name means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. So the Old Testament name that Jesus' name comes from means God is salvation or God saves. But that's not what the angel says. See, the angel says, call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So what he's saying is he's saying, name him Jesus because he's going to save people, because Yahweh is salvation, because Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God, and because that's who he is, he will save his people from their sins. And if that isn't clear enough, if that doesn't bring it right in our faces and tell us who Jesus is in this text, where Matthew goes next does. He makes it even more explicit. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. I'm going to read these again real quick. He says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 22 just introduces the quote, and as we go through Matthew, we're going to see that Matthew does this a lot. He puts up this really formal phrase, and then he introduces a quote from the Old Testament. In verse 23, he quotes Isaiah 7.14. So it's clear enough, right? He picks up this prophecy of Isaiah way back when, where Isaiah said, one day the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. Isn't that the way that we normally read this text? Isn't that the way that we normally uh, hear it talked about and we understand it? That, that that's what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is way back then looking into the future and saying the Messiah is going to be born in this way. But it's really not that simple. And 
got to warn you at the beginning of this that uh, where we're going is worth it, so hang on. Let's take a quick look at Isaiah and find out what Matthew's trying to tell us here. We're going to go back to Isaiah 7 and read verses 1 through 17. And if you have a hard time finding the prophets in your Bible, uh, you're not alone. One of my professors in seminary who has his PhD in New Testament said that he just kind of flips around back there until he finds what he's looking for. So, uh, Isaiah 7, if you have an ESV, it's probably on page 571. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up Jerusalem to, to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Joshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years Ephraim will be broken to pieces, so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again the Lord said to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So in 7.1, Isaiah 7.1, we see the time frame for what's happening. He says, in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king in Judah. So this is, if you remember from when we went to the Old Testament, this is before Jerusalem falls. Ahaz is kind of uh, in the middle of where Solomon was and where the last king of Judah is. So he's kind of smack in the middle of the line. He's king, Isaiah comes and he prophesies. Through verse 6, we kind of understand the political situation of what's happening. Uh, there's the northern kingdom of Israel, and this is where this uh, Pekah is king. He's the son of Remaliah. He teams up with the king of Syria, whose name is Rezin. So you have Rezin and Pekah, these two guys with strange names, who they're coming to Jerusalem to attack it. 
they want to go in, take Ahaz off his throne, and put in this other guy, this Tabeel, who will just do whatever they want. So Ahaz, as any king who knows that two other kings are going to come against him, he's freaking out, and all the people are freaking out with him, and they're worried that their plans are going to come to pass. So Isaiah comes, and he says, take heart, this isn't going to happen. And over in verses 10 and 11, we see uh, the Lord telling Ahaz to ask for a sign. He's saying, ask for me to show you something that's going to prove that this isn't going to happen. Ahaz, in verse 12, it sounds like he's uh, being faithful, but he's really not. He refuses to ask for a sign, even though the Lord has told him to. So he's really being disobedient. Isaiah responds to this in verse 13 by saying, the Lord's going to give you a sign anyway, and it's going to be a big one. So what this sign is, is what Matthew's quoted, verse 14. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. But then he goes on, and through the rest of chapter 7 and beginning of chapter 8, he explains what this sign is and what it means. And he says, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings do dread will be deserted. So he says this child's going to be born, but before he grows up, these two kings are going to get wiped out. These two kings got wiped out long before Jesus comes on the scene. What Isaiah is talking about is not some son that's going to be born in the future. He's talking about some child that's going to be born in his day, in his lifetime, that's going to be assigned to the king who is then on the throne. So what does this mean? Does this mean Matthew's just kind of willy-nilly picking stuff in the Old Testament and saying this all points to Christ, even though it may not? This is where it's helpful for us to understand that in the old, like when we talk about prophetic fulfillment, there's two different types, and this is what's important for us to, to get. There's predictive fulfillment, which basically means there's this one point in the Old Testament, like where Micah says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, and there's one point in the New Testament. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. It's a fulfillment of a predictive prophecy. There's also what's called typological fulfillment. And this refers to the New Testament authors picking up a pattern of events and saying that those pattern of events are fulfilled in the Messiah. Uh, my wife came up with this wonderful illustration of this that I couldn't think of. And that's, uh, if you think about fishing, if you fish with a rod, you have one hook and you catch one fish. That's like predictive fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, there's one point in the Old Testament that matches one point in the New Testament. Whereas if you fish with a net, you come along and you scoop up a whole lot of fish. And that's what typology is like. It's like the, Old, the New Testament authors going back to the Old Testament and saying that here's this whole series of things, and they all point to this series of things in the New Testament. And this is what Matthew's doing with Isaiah 7. So, if we think about this pattern of events in Isaiah 7 and 8, what's happened is there's this foreign power that's coming against Israel to subvert it to their rule. In Jesus' day, they're living under Roman rule. They're living under the rule of a foreign power. Uh, in Isaiah's day, there's this faithless king, Ahaz, who won't even ask the Lord for a sign when the Lord commands him to ask for a sign. 
in Jesus' day, there's Herod, who's not only faithless, he's not even Jewish. So he's on David's throne. Not only is he not a descendant of David, he's not even an Israelite. In Isaiah's day, there's this sign of a child promised who will signify God's presence with his people. He represents that God is going to keep his promise and deliver them from these two enemies, these two kings that are coming against him. In Jesus' day, he's born not signifying God's presence with his people, but actually being God's presence with his people. And he doesn't represent just delivering them from their enemy at hand. He's going to deliver them from all the enemies that they're ever going to face. So, so what's the payoff? How can all this fulfillment mumbo-jumbo connect to our lives today? How can all this stuff, which seems really confusing and doesn't make a lot of sense, how can that connect to our lives today? Well, the child in Isaiah 7 that Matthew's pointing to and saying that that child's like Christ, but Christ is much greater, that child was meant to symbolize that God would keep his promises. Jesus isn't just a sign that God will keep his promises. Jesus is God actually keeping his promises. Jesus is the yes of all the Old Testament prophecies that God made to his people. Paul says that all of those are yes in Christ. Jesus isn't just a sign that God is going to deliver us from our enemies. He actually does it. He frees us from even those things that we enslave ourselves to. The child in Isaiah 7 represented God's promise that he was going to deliver his people one time from these two kings. Jesus delivers us once and for all from everything that we're going to face ever. Not just this thing that's right in front of us that we're seeking a sign from God saying, I'm going to get you past this. Jesus gets us through everything. Coming back to Matthew Verses 24 and 25 tell us how Joseph responds to this angel's message. He takes Mary as his wife, he waits for the son to be born, and then he names him Jesus, just like the angel said. And as I said before, by doing these two things, he represents himself legally taking ownership of Jesus as his son. So Matthew has explained how Jesus becomes Joseph's son, even though Joseph isn't his father. So all that Matthew's doing here, what can we take away from it? What can we apply to our lives this Christmas as we seek to live our lives for the glory of God? I think what's most important for us to notice is that Matthew isn't just concerned about the details. He isn't just concerned about the event and telling us the story. He's, about, he's concerned about revealing who Jesus is to us through the story. For us, it's easy to get caught up in everything else in uh, the presence, in the tree, in the lights, in the 500 poinsettias that are in this room. Uh, And whatever else is going on this season that's going to try to distract us from what's most important, that's who Jesus is. Here are two specific ways that I think that we can help ourselves to focus during this season. The first is really easy. It's listen to Christmas music. Listen to... Let me rephrase that. Listen to worshipful Christmas music. Don't listen to lame songs that talk about how to say Hawaiian. 
or Merry Christmas in Hawaiian. Listen to songs that will remind us of who Jesus is. Some of the best theology out there is taught in Christmas songs. And all we have to do is play them and listen and sing them. And we will teach ourselves who Jesus is. The second thing is, even though you're on vacation, even though it's time off, spend time in the Word. I don't know about you guys, but for me, being out of town equals being out of my routine. And when I'm out of town, or when I'm out of my routine, things easily get missed. And so be intentional about it. even though things have changed, even though you're off from work or you're spending time with family, spend time in the Word. Read the Christmas story with your friends and with your family. And don't just uh, tell the story and think about how nice it is and what happens. Look at who Jesus is and, and how he's revealed through the story. Another question that we can ask uh, this text is what it says about how we share the good news with others. And I think this is the hardest to see, but it's my favorite. You see, Matthew writes his gospel completely different than Luke. As I said at the beginning, Luke kind of goes through and he picks out all the nice stories. Like there's this story about Mary and Elizabeth and they visit and then the baby jumps in inside them and then Mary sings a song and then Jesus is born. It's just this happy, good story. Matthew goes completely the other direction. He's like, I know. I'll pick out this story about Joseph trying to divorce Mary. Uh, and then I'll talk about these wise men who show up late. And then, for good measure, I'll throw in a story about some kids getting killed. Matthew, it's like he picks out the most awkward Christmas stories he can find, and he puts those in his gospel, and he seeks to tell us who Jesus is through those stories. So, be like Matthew. This Christmas, don't be afraid to be awkward. Don't be afraid to bring up who Jesus is, even at times when it's hard to do that, or even with relatives that it's hard to do that with. Talk about who Jesus is, even if it makes you look like the, the crazy relative who talks about Jesus all the time. But by far, I think the most important thing that this text tells us is who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, that he's God with us, that he is the one who is going to save us from our sins. J.I. Packer has this great quote about the Incarnation. He says, The real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the Gospel confronts us, lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of the resurrection, but in the Christmas message of Incarnation. What he's saying is that in reality, the most unbelievable thing about Christianity is not that Jesus died for our sins, not that he rose from the dead, but that the God of the universe took on flesh and was born of a woman as an infant. I mean, to us, that should be the most astounding part of everything that we believe. Mysteriously, Jesus takes on flesh so that he's as divine as he is human and as human as he is divine. And Paul gives us our application of this point. He tells us what it means that Jesus took on flesh and how we should respond. In Philippians 2, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ willingly set aside his glory. He left heaven and he came down here and took on flesh for us. The same Jesus that was born in a manger 30 years later, goes to the cross to die for our sins. He became fragile so that he could be broken for us. He became like us in every way. It was without sin so that he could be the one who could deliver us from it. If you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with Christ, the message of Christmas for you is that Jesus is the one who took on flesh, who became like you so that he could redeem you. Jesus bore the weight of every trial and temptation that we could ever face in this life and stood up under it so that he would understand what we go through as humans and that he could be the one that could finally redeem us from sin. For those of us who are here and who are Christians, I think we can learn from Jesus' example as Paul explains it what the true spirit of Christmas is. It's not giving, it's not joy, it's not hope, it's not peace, it's not grace. The true spirit of Christmas is humility. It's not looking to ourselves, but looking to the interests of others. You know, lots of times we think about what we give up when we are humble. But in reality, what Christ gave up is far greater than anything any of us could ever give up. Father, we thank you that you sent your son into the world as an infant. That mysteriously you allowed him to take on flesh and become like us so he could redeem us. That you bore him up under temptation so that he could be a fitting sacrifice for our sins so that on his humanity he could pour out your wrath against all our sins, both those that we've committed and those that we haven't even thought of yet. Father, we ask that you would drive home who Jesus is to us this Christmas, that we would worship him, Lord, and we would just praise your glory for who he is and that you sent him to us. Father, we ask that you would be with us as we travel, as we spend time with family, as we spend time with friends, that we would make you known to others this Christmas season. Amen. As we said last week, the time of the Lord's Supper is going to be a reflective time of worship instead of the way we've done it in the past. For us, uh, 
in reform circles, mostly Baptist circles, we don't like to call the Lord's Supper communion. Uh, it's usually pretty confusing to us to call it that. And I think at BC that we've kind of gotten confused and we've focused on the communion aspect as between us. Uh, but even though it was misunderstood and it's been misunderstood by others, the communion that those people talk about is taking place between us and God in the Lord's Supper. And so tonight as we take the Lord's Supper and as we've studied this text about God talking about the presence, His presence with us, I think that we should focus on that. See, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus delivers a promise to His disciples and to us. He says that He will be with us always, even to the end of the age. And I think that we hear that and we believe that and we know that, but in our lives, the way we live, it's as if he said that he'll be with us at the end of the age. And we don't live like he's present now. And so as we come and we take the Lord's Supper, be reminded that this infant who was born in a manger was the same one who went to the cross and his body was broken for us and his blood was poured out for our sins. And he's present with us now. So the music's going to start. Come when you're ready. Use this time to consider... Uh, your hearts and prepare your hearts to take the Lord's Supper. And then when you're, you're done, don't hang around the table. Just return to your seats.